an honor and a privilege to be able to, to hang out with these guys every week and to be able to call myself their student pastor. And so um, today's a special day and a fun day to just be able to, to celebrate our senior class and the last seven years of leadership that they've had of being a part of our student ministry and especially this past year. Um, so I'm very excited and honored to be able to, to have you guys back here and up here with us today and, and, and leading us in worship and um, to just draw us to the feet of Jesus. And I love that you guys take heart in that and it's something that you care about. And, um, and John, I know as well, every week as you come and you prepare um, for, for times like this and not just to sing songs, but to make sure that our congregation, our church, is, is, knows that they are being led to the throne of Jesus. So thank you. We appreciate you guys and all that you do. 1860s, 1870s. Horatio Spafford was one of the most wealthy men in the world. He was, he was a, a millionaire, lawyer, businessman in Chicago. And over uh, in, in the 60s and 70s, he was able to build up, sorry, I'm squeaking a little bit. He was able to build up his, his ministry. He was able to build up his wealth. He had investment properties all over the city. Is it here? Sorry, guys. He had investment properties all over the city while at the same time he was also able to invest and be the primary supporter of D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey, two of the greatest evangelists the Christian, the Christian faith has ever known. But in 1871, he and his wife, Anne, and their four daughters ranging between the ages of 12 and 2 were out on Lake Michigan looking upon the city and they were literally watching everything that they had built over the last couple decades burn to the ground. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871, and in that fire, Horatio Spafford lost his business, he lost his properties, he lost everything that he had built. And for two years after that, he was trying to rebuild that, he was trying to reinvest, he was trying to reestablish the, the, the work that he had done. And in 1873, it got to the point of where he was just exhausted. Mentally, physically, the stress was too much. So he and Anne decided they were going to take the girls on a vacation. They were going to go to Great Britain and spend a couple weeks there. And while they were there, they were also going to um, help D.L. Moody plan his next revival that was happening in London. The day before they were supposed to leave, Spafford gets word that he has to stay back in Chicago because there's some business meetings that he could not miss. So he stays, not wanting to ruin his wife and daughter's vacation. He decides they're going to send them off the next day the way that they were supposed to. And, uh, and he would join them a few, weeks, or a few days later. So the next morning, Ann Spafford and their four girls set sail, heading, heading from the States across the Atlantic to get to Great Britain. About two or three days into their journey... On their, on their wooden ship, a British iron sailing ship accidentally crashes into their boat. Historians say that within 12 minutes, their ship had been completely shipwrecked and sunk. In the, in the cleanup, in the minutes, in the hours later, the, 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 the crew was able to spot Anne Spafford floating on a, on a wooden plank off to the side. She was unconscious but still alive. They were able to revive her, put her on a safety ship, and they were sailing back to, to, they were sailing to Wales so that she could be safe. But what they learned that night was their four girls drowned in the shipwreck. It was nine days later before Ann Spafford was ever able to send word to her husband. And she sends him one tele, a telegram with a simple statement, saved alone, what do I do? Stricken with grief, 
Horatio Spafford buys himself a ticket, hops on the next boat, sets sail across sea to get to Wales to be with his wife so they could grieve together. And as he, as he sets, as they're two or three days in, the, the captain of his ship calls him into his quarters and says, Mr. Spafford, I wanted you to know that we are now in the waters at the very place where your wife and your daughter's ship went down. Horatio Spafford, as you can imagine, the grieving that was going on in his mind goes back to his room all alone. And that night, he begins to pen, he, he journals and pens the lyrics to one of the greatest hymns that we've ever known. But it was in that room that night, he wrote, it is well with my soul. Can you imagine what that must have been like for, for Horatio Spafford to, to be going through that, to be over the very waters where he knew he lost his daughters and to know that he was still a few days away from seeing his wife so that they could grieve together and the very first thought that came to his mind was not why, God, but it was, it is well with my soul. See, every year I try to come up with a a word for the year that's going to challenge me and push me and encourage me in my walk and in my, in, in, in my faith. And this year, as I was, um, I was praying through it back in December and not really knowing what, what that was going to be, and I, I was doing a Bible study with a group of boys through the book of 1 Timothy. And in, in, in the chapter one of 1 Timothy, there's this word that kept sticking out to me, and it didn't really make sense. It's not a, a, you know, a very strong faith word, but the word was shipwrecked. And I was like, God, why is this the word that's sticking out? I don't understand. But really what it came down to is me understanding this. How do I prevent myself from shipwrecking my faith all the while allowing God to wreck my life for his name, for his sake, for his glory and his gospel? And I can tell you that is a very dangerous and scary prayer to pray. That God would wreck your life. And I can tell you in the last six months I've had to go through some, through some things that I wish, on, I wish no one would have to go through. There's been some trials that I've had to go through that God had to get my attention, that he had to refocus me and put my eyes back on him. And what I've learned through these last six months and really all 36 years of my life is there's going to be times when the waters rise around us. There's gonna be times where there's storms. There's gonna be times when, when we feel like we can, we're heading in the wrong direction. And it's in those moments we have two choices. We can either fix our eyes on Jesus and we can run after him, or we can allow the crisis, the situation, the difficult moment that we're in, we can allow it to shipwreck our faith. And for me, what I know more than anything else, what I know more than anything else is when those waters rise, when that crisis comes, what I want more than anything else in the world is I want to be able to say that, God, it is well with my soul. As I was preparing for today and I was thinking through and knowing that I was going to talk about shipwrecked, I thought the natural thing to do is I'm going to research famous shipwrecks in our history. So you look at the Titanic and you look at the Spaffords and you look at all these other things and I came away with two, two kind of takeaways from studying shipwrecks and what that means. And really what it is is that we are able to understand our past as well as teach, sorry, Shipwrecks allow us to understand our past as well as teach us lessons about how human error and the environment we place ourselves in, how they can damage one another. So we're able to look back on a shipwreck. We're able to look back at what caused the disaster to happen. We're able to look and see what caused the infrastructure of the ship to break down for it to sink. But we're also able to use that and look forward and know how to prevent it from future damage. 
I learned that. That was number one. Number two, the second thing I learned from studying shipwrecks, and this one is very interesting to me, that 20% of shipwrecks happen in the deep waters. But the other 80% happen close to shore. And so if that means, if we're going to, if we're going to prevent ourselves from shipwrecking our faith, it means that prevent, the prevention happens in the prep, not when we're in the crisis. If we're gonna be able to say that it is well with my soul, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we have to prepare our hearts, we have to prepare our minds in the same way that Horatio Spafford did. So when the waters do rise, the first thought that comes to our mind is it is well with my soul. When Paul was writing his letter to, to Timothy, his first letter in 1 Timothy chapter one, he had to spend a lot of time encouraging Timothy. It was, Timothy was left in Ephesus to begin his ministry to start his church, but Ephesus was one of the most difficult places for a person to begin ministry. Most of the, the native Ephesians were devoted to the worship of Diana. Diana was the goddess of sexual immorality, so you can imagine what the culture and the environment must have been like for a young man like Timothy to begin his ministry in. It's a, very, it's a place that very much needed the word of God but a, very, a place that was very difficult to start your ministry. So Timothy, being Paul's son in the faith, he began to send encouraging remarks to him a lot because Paul, or excuse me, because Timothy was insecure about what he was doing. And so he said, if you want to be successful in ministry, let me tell you a few things. And so he starts out in 1 Timothy, the first 17 verses, he tells him that you have got to, <clears throat> excuse me, you have got to, um, you've got to, to teach against the false doctrines. You have to teach the truth to the people because the people around you are not getting truth. You also have to, you have to proclaim the gospel. You have to tell them about what Jesus has done and he can save anyone, no matter where they've been, what they've done, no matter what you're going through, Jesus Christ came to die for you. And Paul says, use me as an example. I am the chief of sinners. I used to kill Christians and now, and now he has saved me. So if he can save me, he can save anyone. He says, teach sound doctrine proclaim the gospel, and defend the faith. Defend that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is risen, and one day he is coming back. Defend the faith. And he says, if you do those things, you will succeed. You will succeed. And then he gets to verses 18 and 19, and this is kind of where we're gonna settle in on our scripture this morning. It's in verse 18 and 19 that Paul says this to Timothy. And he, and he goes from encouragement to a warning. He says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with you the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, hold on to the faith, and a good conscience. And some have rejected these things. Some have rejected the sound doctrine. Some have rejected the gospel. Some have rejected their faith, and in doing so, they have shipwrecked their own faith. If 80% of all shipwrecks happen while we're close to shore, then shipwrecking our life like Paul warned against doesn't require us being far gone in our walk. It doesn't require us being far gone in our walk, but it happens early on. It happens in our prep every day. So avoiding disaster comes in the prep, and the way that we do that is no matter if you're a senior adult in the room or if you're a senior that's getting ready to graduate high school, that the intentionality of your walk with the Lord has to take precedence over everything else in your life. Over every other th area in your life, it has to take precedence. So how do we do this? How do we avoid disaster? How do, we, how do we allow God's word to take precedence in our life? And I think the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize who we are as opposed to who God is. 
And we, as we just sang about, we are sinful man and we are prone to wonder. We know that God has set out a course for us that he desires for us to be on. But what we tend to do since we live in a fallen state, we are post-Genesis 3, we are fallen mankind, we tend to then veer off course and we zigzag rather than staying on the course that he designed for us. When we feel like we, we got everything figured out, we get a little bit prideful and we veer off this way and then God grabs our attention and then we come back here and then we start going this way again because we think we have it figured out and then we get ourselves focused again and we come back here. We are prone to wonder, wonder. We are sinful man. If I were to ask our students, they could all probably shout this out. Please don't because I know you know the answers. But if I were to make a list of the things, that, of the things in my life that I love the most, they could give you a lot of those things very easily. The first thing that comes to my mind when I make that list is I love my wife and my kids. Hopefully that would be the first thing that they realize too. Um, but that's one of them. The next thing they would probably tell you is that I love Nike and I'm a snob about it. Okay? And that is true. I've told you guys that before. I won't purchase anything else. Okay? Um, I, I, they'll tell you that I love UNC basketball. And tomorrow we're seven weeks out of being national champions again. So it's been a good two months for me. Okay, um, and, and the other thing they'll tell you, they may not tell you, but they, they know, is that I love ranch dressing. I will literally put ranch dressing on anything that there is. It is the greatest condiment that has ever been made, in my opinion. I love it, okay? It's something that I love. But if I also were to make a list of things that I hate, they would also be very easy and quick to tell you some of the things that I hate. Um, the first one is Duke basketball. And anything that goes, I, I, they, are, they are literally of the devil, um, and I, I can't stand it. Um, those of you, and it's okay to hate them as long as I love them in Jesus. You Auburn, Alabama fans get that, right? So it's okay to hate. Um, I hate to run. It is, and living in Homewood makes that very hard because you can't look outside my window from it, more than five minutes at any time during the day out of my office that somebody's running up and down Manhattan. I'm like, when do you people work? Like, I mean, it's unbelievable. Okay. Um, but there, there's, there's tons of running. I hate to lose. Um, and I, I try not to do it very often, um, but it, it happens a little bit more often than I would like. But the one thing that they will, they will easily tell you that I hate um, is mayonnaise. I hate, hate mayonnaise. I literally, I, I said Duke basketball is of the devil, but I think sin entered the world through that white creamy paste that you try to put on a sandwich. It is, it is horrific. I hate it. I hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. Um, but here's the thing that saddens me. As I was making a list of the things that I hate, the one thing that I know that I'm supposed to hate more than anything else in the world never even crossed my mind. It never even made the list. And I feel like if any of you were to, to create a list of things that you hate and not on purpose, but you would leave it off the list too, and it's, that our, it's our sin. The very thing that we're supposed to hate more than anything else, we leave it off the list. And the reason for that is I think it's just because it's become so common. The world that we live in, we've justified it so much that the sin, we don't even recognize it as sin anymore. And so we, do, we, we allow it to just be common in our life, and so we don't hate it. It's something that we actually enjoy a little bit. So this morning, I want us to redefine what sin is. I want us to have a clear definition of what sin is in our life. And it may be a little bit different, but it's, it makes plenty of sense. Here's the definition of sin I want us to work with. Sin is anything that I love more than I love Christ. And I think for us, there's not many of us in the room that could really would say with our mouth that there's something that we love more than Christ, but I think our lifestyle would tell us something different every day. And so 
if, the way Dr. John Piper puts it is, if anything that we love more than sin, is, or anything we love more than Christ is sin, then we are, that thing is also the very essence of evil in our life. So that means our sin is evil. And if we believe what Romans 12, 9 says, then we are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So that means we have to hate our sin. But the problem is we don't hate our sin because the reality is we, we enjoy things like um, security. We enjoy things like prosperity. We, and none of these things are necessarily wrong by themselves. But we enjoy prestige and we enjoy popularity. We, we enjoy the fact that we can manipulate our way to make sure our kids are on the right team or in the right classroom. And then you start throwing in things like your language or the things that you watch or the things that you listen to, the things that, the places that you go that you know probably shouldn't. And you would never say that any of those things, you would never speak with your lips that any of those things that you love more than Christ, but your lifestyle screams it every day. And the problem is we don't hate that sin. We tend to justify it. Here, I'm going to give you an example of what I mean, Grayson, if you can come help me with this just for a second. I mentioned a moment ago that I hate mayonnaise. Um, and there's literally a bowl of mayonnaise sitting over here. I could not take the lid off of it because if he opened it and I was close to it, I would gag on stage and nobody needs that, <laughs> okay? Um, so I've stayed over here, but I, I hate mayonnaise with everything I am, so I'm gonna stay over here. I'm gonna trust Grayson's gonna do his job, um, but I love ranch dressing. Do you guys realize that ranch dressing is 90% mayonnaise? <laughs> I will put whatever, I will dip anything in some ranch dressing, but I won't go near mayonnaise. So, um, but the problem with our sin, and, and this illustration, mayonnaise is sin, and it's gonna continue to be sin for the rest, as long as I live. But this illustration, mayonnaise is sin, but the problem with mayonnaise is, or sin, it is it doesn't look like mayonnaise, it looks like ranch. Because we justify things, and every time we justify something in our life, it's like adding another little spice or some little ingredient to the mayonnaise. I mentioned our language a minute ago. As I, as I you think about the gossip, the way we talk behind people's back, the way sometimes the way that we bully them to their face, the, when we use curse words because we feel like it's the only word that's appropriate for the moment, or it's, it, or it's used in the, in the, it, for humor's sake. And we justify it and say the whole world does it. It's in every song we listen to. It's in every movie. It's not that big of a deal. I'm just like everybody else. Or the things that we watch, the things that we place before our eyes, that we look at on our phone, the movies that we will go see, the TV shows that we watch, that we realize that the language in it is terrible. It's got tons of innuendo. Even some of it um, is the nudity that's there. And we say, I'm an adult. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't affect me. When in reality, we realize that out of our mouth is the overflow of our heart, and the only way that our heart is ever filled is by the things that we watch and the things that we listen to. But we justify it because it's popular, it's what's out, it's the number one movie out there. I gotta go see it, it's gonna be funny. Or maybe it's your pride. And you say, I've gotta be a little bit prideful, I'll never be successful. And I know this one hits me hard every single day, and it's laziness. Not at work. Men in the room, we, we wouldn't be lazy at work, but as soon as we get home, the first thing we want to do is take out our phone or turn on the TV. I know it's a struggle for me every single day. And I know I got two kids that want to go outside and play, and my wife is trying to tell me about her day, but I just want to veg out and tune them out and be lazy. And in that moment, I know that I'm a bad dad and a bad husband. But we justify it because we worked hard for the last nine to 10 hours. Or maybe it's our social media presence the things that we will, the, the people that we will follow, the things that we will share, the things that we will, um, that we will retweet in the name of humor. 
knowing that none of it brings any glory and honor to the name of Christ. But it's just social media. It's not that big of a deal. Or maybe it's when we, when we begin to prioritize our kids' extracurriculars over being at church. And I know that steps on a little bit of toes because it steps on mine because I'm trying to figure out what to do with my 10-year-old right now. And how do I, how do I balance her being in gymnastics versus being at church? And I know I was a varsity basketball coach for 10 years, so I get that side of it. And I want to teach them about commitment. And the things that you're involved, you have to give up certain things. But why is it church always the thing that we give up first? What are we trying to teach our kids is more important in life, their walk with the Lord or being good at a game? And see, what happens is as he mixes those things, he mixed it all together and we justified all those things and he just mixes it up, mixes it up. And we look over here and this is no longer mayonnaise. But now we have ranch dressing that I'm going to take home and eat later today. (laughs) And the thing that we know that we're supposed to hate becomes the very thing that we love. And when you love, when you begin to love the thing, thank you, Grayson, Vanna White, you can go sit down. The things that we know that we are supposed to hate, when we begin to love the things that we know that we're supposed to hate, we're on the verge of shipwrecking our faith. And the greatest fear that I have for our church The greatest fear that I have for my kids, the greatest fear that I have for myself, the greatest fear I have for our seniors who are about to graduate, and the greatest fear I have for the Christian church in general is this, that we look at these things and we recognize them and we know that we are justifying our faith and we're okay with it. That we can look at the creator of the universe who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and say, God, I know that I'm setting sail on a course that is nowhere near where you want me to go, but it's okay. That we can look to God and say, God, I know everything about you. I've grown up in church since I was born. I know every attribute about who you are. I could go sit down with my life group teacher or any pastor in this, at this church, and I could have an intelligent conversation about who you are. I could even tell my neighbor about how to be saved because I know the way that Romans Road works. I know that you were spit on. I know that you are laughed at. I know that you are mocked. I know that you are beaten beyond recognition. I know they took a crown of thorns and they shoved them into your skull. I know that they spread your arms out wide and they put a spike through your wrist and then they did the same thing to your ankles. I know that you bled. I know that you died. I even know that you did it just for me. And I know that three days later, you got up just like you said you would. In fact, a couple weeks ago at Easter, I posted a picture on Instagram and Facebook with a hashtag, he is risen. And I know all these things about you, God, but you're just not worth it. I'm going to choose to love something more than I'm going to love you. It's the greatest fear that I have for our church and for these students and for my own family because it's been my life. That's the life that I lived. That I chose things and I still choose things every day that I know that I love more than Christ. That I would never say it out loud with my lips, but my life screams it all the time. So it's the greatest fear I have for us. Seniors, it's the greatest fear I have for you when you step off to school that you're going to choose to love something more than you love Christ. But the good news is there's freedom because we have to recognize who God is but we are who we are, but we also have to recognize who God is and when we begin to see him as the, as the one who is seated on the throne, as the one who, who holds the worlds in his hands, who's the one who spread it out and he became sin that knew no sin so that we could become righteousness, 
When we see God for who he is, then it changes everything. And we become like the prophet Isaiah when he had his vision of heaven. And he saw the Lord seated on high and the angels around him singing, holy, holy, holy. He bowed to his knees and he says, woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And the question we have to ask ourselves today is this, is when was the last time that the sin in your life ruined you? That you became so burdened over your sin that you fell to your knees and realized that you are nothing without God. A mentor once said to me, Lance, you better start killing your sin before your sin starts killing you. And killing your sin starts in the prep. It can't start in the middle of the crisis. Because every day you wake up and you make a decision. Today I'm gonna set my eyes on Jesus and I'm gonna run after him and I'm gonna walk in this direction or you wake up and say today is gonna be about compromise. And it's just one little compromise here and one little compromise there. And compromise after compromise, you realize you find yourself in the deep water, but you didn't shipwreck yourself out here in the deep. You did it back here at the beginning in the prep. You shipwrecked your faith back here when you woke up, not when you ended up in the storm. Andy Stanley says it like this, it is your direction, it is not your intention that determines your destination. Guys, next year when you head off to school, you may have every intention of living every single day like Jesus, that you're going to walk towards Jesus and run after him every single day. But if you wake up every day and you set your foot in a different direction, you're going to end up the other way. It doesn't matter what you intended. And somebody gets to where they don't want to be in the same way they get to where they want to be by placing one foot in front of the other and walking that way. David Nasser said it like this, your scandalous sin rarely starts as a premeditated choice to live blatantly against God's commands. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to disappoint the God of the universe. I can't wait to sin so scandalously that I've ruined my life, I've ruined my marriage, I've ruined my friendships, I've ruined, I've ruined my ability to share the gospel with somebody because of the lifestyle that I've lived. Nobody wakes up saying that. But what happens is, is that's, that's where we find ourselves. We've justified and we come, sin has become so common that we end up over here so far away in the middle of the deep that we can't get back to where we want to go. We shipwrecked our faith. So we, in order to prevent that, we have to, has to start in the prep. We have to kill our sin. Colossians 3 says it this way. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Don't set it aside. Put it to death. Your sexual immorality, your impurity, your lust, evil desires, greed, all of these things which are idolatry. Hebrews 12 then says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We have to run to him. We have to kill off our sin. We can't, have, we can't even flirt with the idea of it. Of it. To, live, to, to put that away means that we live a life of desperation for Jesus and we have to be desperate for him because we know that the enemy, that Satan is trying to take our intimacy from Christ, away from our, our time with Christ. And he's trying to set our eyes on a different course, but we have to set our eyes on, on the one who is the director of our course, the one who is our lighthouse, the one that is our one true north, the one that we know is going to bring us home. 
And we set our eyes on him and we run after him. And so, and when we do that, rather than shipwrecking our faith, we allow God to wreck our life for his name, for his sake, for his gospel, and for his glory. And all that requires is complete and total surrender of his will. Because following Jesus, especially guys, when you get to college, is not something that you're going to be able to do half-heartedly. It's not going to be able to, it's not going to just be a label that you can throw on or a t-shirt that you can put on when it's convenient. Following Jesus for the rest of your life has to be central in all that you do because you have never been called to be like everybody else. You have not been called to act like every other fraternity brother or sorority sister when you get there. You've been called to be set apart. Businessmen, you have never been called to run your business like everybody else in the world does. You've been called to be set apart. Because it will never be enough for you to proclaim with your lips that you are following after Jesus. You have to live it out in your life. Because the reality is, storms are going to come. Crisis is going to happen. The water will rise around you. And my desire, my hope is in the midst of that storm, you're able to say, it is well with my soul. Um, this morning, I know that there may be some of you in the room that as you think through, there's some, there's some areas in your life where you know that your eyes have not been focused on your Savior. That your eyes have wandered, you've been prone to wonder, and you felt yourself somewhere else, and you know that in this moment you feel as if you may be a little bit convicted. And you know that in this moment you've got to get some things right in your life. And so the invitation today is for, is, is for you, that you can come to the front and you can kneel, at the, kneel here, or you can stay in your pew and kneel, or you can sit and be quiet, or whatever it may be, but you know that you've got to get some things right because you know you're on the verge of shipwreck. Or it may be, you know, I, don't, I know that I don't have a place that is my church, that I can call home, and this is the place you, you, I want to be a part of a place like Dawson because the good news about being at a place like Dawson is that even when we find ourselves in the midst of the crisis, you got a family of faith that believes and trusts in you and they will, for, that you are forgiven and that you are known and you can be loved. And this is a place that will do that. And you, if you want to be a part of a place like this, we'll have some pastors up here. Or if you want to announce or come forward and let somebody know that you've given your life to Christ for the first time, this invitation time is for you. So the question you asked this morning is where, what will be your guide? What will you look to? Who will you look to? Will you avert your eyes and go in a different direction or will you fix your eyes on Jesus and run after him? If that's the case, as John comes to lead, this invitation is for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, we pray that this morning that you will reveal to us the areas that we have justified our sin, that we have, and Lord, that you will convict us over that. And that God, that we will, you will draw our eyes back to you, that we can run after you with all that we are. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen.